Greg, look at this email I just got. My dear, I am Barrister Musa Issa, the solicitor counsel to the late Vera Sidorova, who was, before time of death, head of state of the Kazakhstan. Just yesterday, a family member called to solicit my humble self to look for a reputable gentleman who will be of great assistance to the family and somebody who can take over the sum of $27 million. Kion, this is just one of those 419 scam letters. No, it's not because they always mention Nigeria and this one doesn't. I think you're focusing on the wrong detail. I swear. Greg, if it said Nigeria, I would back right off. But in this case, I really think the sensible thing to do is to fly to Kazakhstan, establish residence, maybe, you know, date a little bit, get a feel for the place, and then, you know, make my move on this $27 million. Really? Is that the most sensible use of your time? I don't know, because I have no logical framework for decision-making. Remember that time when I invested in the elephant dung farm? How could I forget? Today, Stephen Dubner tells us how to think like a freak about problems. Frank Rizzo breaks down the Tony Awards. And Andrew Zimbalist teaches a course in sports stadium economics. And now he's starting to think that some of the women on the Tonys were actually men. Colin McEnroe. Hello, people who listen to this in podcast form or some other form that would cause you to be hearing my voice right now. So I have some terrible news. Well, it's not that terrible. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not pandemonium terrible. It's not mass hysteria terrible. But we had a problem with our audio servers. It all stems from a very bad decision we made to let Chucky be the weekend engineer this weekend. And it turns out he's just not reliable even now. Even now, he's still a homicidal toy. Uh, So we had a little problem with the audio servers, and we lost the first segment, most of the first segment of the show, which was a fascinating, I I hesitate to tell you this, but it was a fascinating conversation with uh, Stephen J. Dubner, who's part of the Freakonomics team. And when I say we lost it, like we really lost it. I mean, you know. There, there will be in our post-apocalyptic future puppet shows in which our entire conversation is acted out, but you're probably not going to be around for that. So what we do have are two very interesting segments, one of them uh, with the economist Andrew Zimbalist. Uh, that'll be the last one. Uh, he specializes in looking at the economics of sports stadiums and, and, and sports franchises in general, and obviously that's on the minds of people around Connecticut right now. Uh, and then before that, uh, Frank Rizzo, who's the theater critic uh, of the Hartford Current, uh, is going to kind of break down last night's Tony Awards, which also have some pretty profound Connecticut implications. You may know that one of the uh, one of the big winners of the night was a show that was birthed uh, here in Hartford at the Hartford Stage Company. So that's what we've got for you, and maybe uh, a tiny trickle of Stephen J. Dubner. I'm not entirely sure yet. Um, sorry about that. We I, the main thing I want to say is we love you. We love you, podcast listeners, and we. We want to provide you with uh, a program that will make you happy, and and we hope this does, but it'll only make you two-thirds as happy as we wanted it to, and that causes us great sorrow. Anyway, thanks for listening, and here's what we've got. Reading uh, Think Like a Freak, I was uh, thinking, you know, you could do an entire Broadway show with Stephen J. Dubner because, I mean, there's some ideas that just on the face of them shouldn't be done. Just you describe them and they shouldn't be done. I mean, musical based on Bridges of Madison County might be one of them. Or, for that matter, musical about the boat building industry by Sting. You know, you just say that and it seems like 
You know, it seems like everybody in the room is like, oh, no, we should never do that. But in fact, uh, both of those things are realities. One has come and gone. Uh, the other is uh, is nigh upon us. Uh, but uh, before we even mention anything like that, oh, we're so lucky to have Frank Rizzo, a theater critic for the Hartford Current, and uh, blogging about theater uh, at Behind the Curtain. Uh, and so, Frank, this is a happy day in Hartford. I mean, we don't know what double uh, A baseball could ever <laughs> portend for us, but uh, for a considerably smaller investment, we have national exposure. Well, first, first there was the uh, UConn double win in basketball, and now this. Right. I mean, if uh, Hartford doesn't uh, take advantage of such high-profile wins, then they're not doing their job. So explain what you mean by this. This uh, the winning a Tony Award for a, for a musical is the, the biggest Broadway honor there there is uh, because it translates uh, to uh, shows and uh, going all around literally the world. And it represents a show that was nurtured and developed and paid for uh, and with a lot of talent from Hartford stage. Uh, the audiences in downtown Hartford were the first ones to really experience what the best show on musical on Broadway is, uh, and it's officially recognized last night at the Tony Awards. So we're talking about A Gentleman's Guide to Love a and Murder. Guide, oh, you're right. The name might be good. A Gentleman's <laughs> Guide to Love and Murder, directed by uh, Hartford Stage's artistic director, Darko uh, uh, Jelnik, who uh, won for Best Actor. I mean, um, best director, best director yeah. in the musical. And actually, you know, when something like that happens, Frank, you know, when you hear the Darko, you hear Darko's name get called out, however fuzzily by Clint Eastwood, who was probably only about 70% sure about where he even was at that moment. But uh, but you hear Darko's name and you see him walking up there. And I don't know about you, but I was thinking, I wonder if anybody will know about the Hartford connection here. So, Wolfie, uh, let's get the answer to that question. This is what this these are the, the first words out of his mouth. I would like to thank my artistic home, Hartford Stage. My husband, Josh, I love you, Um, Robert and Steve, and the beautiful cast headed by Jefferson Mays, and um, I should thank so many people, but most of all, my mom literally taught me how to jump out of airplanes. She fought during the Second World War. Uh, She was a skydiver in 1940s. Uh, she's 87 years old, and she's too frail to be here tonight, so I'm going to thank her. So, mama, volim te, hvala ti za sve što si mi dala. Volim te mnogo, drži se. Thank you very much. So it's a good thing that his frail mother wasn't there, because if she sat in the front row, Neil Patrick Harris would have sat on top of her. Uh, well, it was, it was such a uh, touching moment. And uh, actually, Do- I talked to Darko right after that. He said accepting the award from Clint Eastwood was a uh, surreal experience, and, and who can blame him for thinking that? And, and then what he said to his mother, uh, who is uh, you know, very frail and not doing so well in her home in Maryland, is simply that he loved her. Uh, it was all for her and to just uh, stay well. You know, Frank, uh, you and I have watched a series of transitions at uh, the Hartford Stage Company, starting with Mark Lamos, who was a hell of a director, still is a hell of a director, uh, replaced by Michael Wilson, a hell of a director, and a guy who really knew how to interface with the community, too. I mean, just, you know, he knew everybody in Hartford. Everybody knew him. Um, now Darko's come along, and I, I feel like 
and we, we certainly lost nothing in this transition. And Darko almost seems like more of a crowd. I mean, both of those guys are massive directors. Darko seems like almost more of a crowd pleaser, though, than 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 they were. I mean, the, his uh, watching A Gentleman's Guide when it was playing in Hartford, I, I walked out in the lobby and I ran into Mike Stotts, who runs the other side, the business side of the Hartford stage. I said, this thing's going to New York, right? <laughs> I mean, he, he just seems to have kind of a very nice touch with, with what, what an audience is going to love. He has a great amount of style and, and taste issues, but uh, Hartford Stage uh, is just extraordinarily lucky to have such a run of special directors who each have uh, you know brought shows to Broadway and have been nominated uh, for their shows. Uh, so it's, the question is, what does this uh, mean when, what does this win mean for, for Hartford Stage and, and for Hartford to uh, see if this will generate new support for new musicals and new work, which is always, always a, a tough sell. Um, well, what what do you think it does mean? I mean, uh, I mean, it's it's early to say. We don't really know whether they'll sell more subscriptions next season, or but you have to assume there's a bump. There's some kind of bump. I mean, n- this has never happened. I think you pointed out today. This hasn't happened since Annie came out of the Goodspeed Opera House right. uh, back in the 1970s for a best musical Tony. You've got to assume there is a bump at the box office. And as you say, maybe a bump even also in terms of what's possible, what could get well, funded. Well, I-, I think it would definitely get a bump at the uh, box office and it will also get some cash because uh, Hartford Stage will be participating in the royalties along with Old Globe Playhouse in San Diego that had the second production of the show prior to Broadway. Way. But what I think it uh, most significantly means is that major funders uh, will be more inclined to throw in major money to support things that no one has ever heard about. Uh, let's not forget that uh, supporting the show to, to the tune of like $135,000 was the uh, Richard uh, P. Uh, Garmini uh, Fund out of the Hartford Foundation for Public Living, uh, Giving. That's 135000 and it got other types of grants like that. Without that, this show could never have happened, and no one in Hartford would be you know, celebrating tonight. Uh, you know, don't forget, Etna too uh, uh, is hugely supported. An unknown uh, playwright called Kiera uh, Allegria Hudas, and uh, for her mm-hmm. play Water by the Spoonful, she won a Pulitzer Prize. So Hartford Stage is really on a roll. I mean, one of the lessons too for people is, you know, I, I always feel this way too. You should go see Hartford Stage and, and, and Theater Works and Long Wharf and Yale Rep and Goodspeed. Go see all these theaters, all the all the stuff that you can at these theaters, because you also will pay a lot less. I mean, you're going to spend a lot of money going to see that show, Gentleman's Guide. I don't know what you know what an orchestra seat is uh, these days for that particular show, but it's not cheap. It's probably three times what it would co- would have cost you to see it at, at at Hartford Stage at least. Absolutely, but the other thing too is, listen, you're going to be the first to see. I mean, see the show that everyone's going to be talking about next year. You're, you know, you're, you're going to be, you're going to have a little cachet saying, uh, you know, this is. Have you have you seen the latest show at whether it be Long Wharf or Westport or Hartford Stage, and. Uh, and especially now that it has such an incredible tr- track record for all of these theaters uh, moving things on. But even if they didn't move anything on, uh, you know, what, the, what they're doing is just extraordinary. And at the highest professional level, that is obviously uh, rewarded last night. So did you get to go to uh, these post parties and stuff yes, like that? I did. All right. So, well, yeah, give, give was, us, uh, pull back the well. curtain uh, on that. Uh, we want to know what's going on behind the curtain at these parties. 
Well, uh, the, the Gentleman's Guide Party was at the uh, 30 Rock, at the outdoor uh, restaurant, the Summer Garden restaurant, which is literally over the skating rink. So uh, the crowd was dancing and celebrating beneath the, you know, gilded bronze statue of Prometheus. Uh, you know, the DJ was playing uh, Pharaoh Williams' Happy, and you've never seen a happier crowd in a long, long time. I thought it was a, a fairly interesting telecast last night, although, I mean, I think I prefer Neil Patrick Harris as host of the Tonys uh, yeah. to, to Hugh Jackman. I mean, Hugh Jackman's really good, and, and, I mean, you don't lose that much dropping down to him. Yeah, I could have done without the hopping. The hopping, the hopping in the uh, beginning? That yeah. didn't work for me. I didn't get it. <laughs> Uh, but in general, I mean, it certainly is the best award show to watch it, because it, people it can actually is. do things. It is, and, and you really get a taste of it. Of course, the plays sort of get uh, shortchanged. Uh, that's uh, you know been a perennial uh, dilemma of how to present uh, non-musical work. Mm-hmm. But at the very least, it, it, it gives uh, audiences from you know around the country that, of course, you know, will never see a Broadway show, but have a sense that this is part of the our American culture. Now, uh, so last night we uh, we had a Gentleman's Guide winning Best Musical, Darko wins Best Director. I think also there was a maybe a Best Script and a Best, best Costume. And a Best Costume. Yeah. So um, and, and lost out on the score to Jason Robert Brown from British Bridges of Madison County. Although I can put a Connecticut uh, tie-in on, on that. I may be handing you a uh, uh, a blog post or something in doing this, which is that David Golub, who is by, considered by many people to be the best lawyer in Connecticut, has been involved in lots and lots of massive landmark cases. He and his brother, who I believe is a rabbi, they they are producers of um, of Broadway shows. And in fact, I think they, they were among the producers for the Duran comedy that's playing at Hartford Stage Company right now. So they were among the producers of Bridges of Madison County. So there's a Connecticut tie-in even for that one. <laughs> well, there's a Connecticut tie-in because Jason Robert Brown uh, developed his uh, Broadway show 13 at Goodspeed's uh, Second Theater, the Norma Terrace in Chester. Chester. And he, the, his other show just ran at the Long Wharf, too. I think it might that's right. Uh, and uh, Bridges of uh, or Madison County was a lovely, lovely show. I saw it when it uh, premiered at the Williamstown Theater Festival last year, and, and it, was, it was a terrific show, too. So uh, the other Connecticut tie-in, Frank Rizzo, uh, was Anika Noni Rose. Uh, she was among the nominees uh, in, uh, for a featured actor in a play uh, for Raisin in the Sun. Um, well, they called out the name of the right player, but not the name of the right actress. <laughs> well, didn't she look terrific, too? She did look great. Oh, and so she's from Bloomfield. Her father, I believe, was a co- right. corporation counsel for the city and of Hartford. she keeps on coming back to Hartford. She's very connected to Charter Oak and uh, so many other activities in Hartford. So she's a local gal who, uh, you know, uh, still is connected to her roots. And she and Jason Robert Brown um, have collaborated on some performances, too. I think he's done a thing where he'll showcase some of his music, just mm-hmm. her and, and him and a piano or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so and really the go-to girl for a lot of these things. Yeah. So she's and she's a huge talent, and she, and she will win a Tony, I think, someday. Well, she already won a Tony. She already has or, a um, uh, Caroline or Change. Oh, that's right, Caroline or Change. Absolutely. All yeah, right, and so. she her voice is extraordinary. No, she's, you know, she's she's. I want to see her in another musical. I mean, she's terrific in A Raisin in the Sun, but uh, you know that gal can sing. All right, Frank Rizzo, uh, great to talk to you. Read more of Frank Rizzo in the Hartford Current or go to the blog, uh, which is part of the Hartford Current, Behind the Curtain. And we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Andrew Zimbalist. He is the god of stadium economics. I want me a trophy. I want, I want, I want a trophy. 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 
Checking Ticketmaster right now for tickets to the new Sting Broadway musical, and it says I can have any seat at any performance. Should I be worried? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Lily Tyson and Allison Ehrenreich. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Clint Eastwood. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff performing a musical number from the fridges of Madison County, visit WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, why are Canadians so darn funny? And now, back to Colin. I just like the topic of tomorrow's show. I like even hearing it said. That's how uh, great a topic it is. All right, so we're going to talk uh, uh, stadium economics here. Uh, Jeff Cohen uh, is here in the studio with us. He's uh, the, the ace newsman for WNPR who's been doing the deep dive uh, into the numbers uh, on the Hartford Stadium. Uh, it's a tough day for Jeff because the last night at the Tonys, uh, Eva and Sadie and the worst haircut ever, the musical did not do well. Um, I think casting Taylor Swift as Sadie was a big mistake. <laughs> it was I just, rough. I, no, I, she yeah, did not did not own that part. Uh, and but uh, and so as you probably know, there's a proposal to move uh, the New Britain Rockets, a double A uh, baseball team, to Hartford and to uh, make them happy by building uh, a, a very modern stadium for them. Um, the top number on the stadium would be sixty million dollars. You know, there's also the possibility they'll just give a lot of it back, you know, and, and not use it all, but that doesn't happen all that often. So Jeff's got the numbers here. Uh, joining us is uh, Andrew Zimbalist, uh, who is the Robert A. Woods Professor of Economics at Smith College. He's written extensively on the uh, business of sports, and for a long time, so long that I first became aware of his work back in the 1990s when we were going through a huge uh, convulsion here about the notion of building uh, a much bigger and more expensive stadium for the New England Patriots, who turned out not to be coming. Uh, he's the author of several books, including uh, his most recent, The Sabermetic Revolution, assessing the growth of, an, of analytics uh, in baseball. So, um, Andrew Zimbalist, let's just sort of begin with the general idea of improving a struggling city through uh, the relocation uh, of a professional sports team. Uh, we can get specific about minor league baseball if you want, but but just for starters, my sense is reading your work and then the work that your work has spawned, I think, this this much larger academic network of economists who are uh, doing similar kinds of things these days. You know, I mean, if there's one, if there's two rules, it seems like one of them is it usually costs more than everybody thinks it's going to cost, and it usually generates less revenue than everybody's claiming uh, it, it's gonna. But but feel free to disagree with me about this. You're the expert. I, no, Colin, it sounds like you don't even need me. You got it all down. <laughs> uh, yeah, so th- there have been studies now for the last 25 years looking statistically at what happens to a city when it introduces a professional ball team into the city and or builds an arena or stadium in the city. And what those studies have uniformly found, uniformly I underscore because economists rarely agree with each other, is that a stadium by itself or an arena by itself is not an engine of economic development, which is to say that it does not generate net jobs and it does not raise per capita income. Now, that that conclusion, which has, as I say, appeared in all sorts of studies, uh, is in fact a generalization. It, it's kind of an average over all of the cases. There, there can be individual cases where if the financing of the stadium is propitious for the city, if it's favorable for the city, um, if the city has certain uh, development characteristics and locational opportunities, 
then uh, and, and and there's a reasonably good lease, then it's possible that there could be a net. Uh, modest and net positive increase in employment from from the stadium. On the other hand, if those factors are not present and they lean the other way against the city's interest, then it could be a negative influence. But on average, uh, the idea of building a stadium by itself or an arena by itself uh, as, as a development tool is not a good idea. It doesn't it doesn't pay off. So what's been happening over the last ten years, more or less is that especially in these days of fiscal stringency when no, no, no government body seems to have any money um, is that cities have been leaning on the the team owners to say look if if you want you want to have a partnership here and you want us to help you out with land and also with financing we want you to commit to developing the area around the stadium that is to say we want you to if you, you know you're talking about oh the stadium is an iconic magnet for activity well so why don't you commit find some investors and commit to build some residential property there or commit to build commercial property or commit to build retail property when there so are there are some examples where you have that larger development plan involving not just the stadium but also other investments in those circumstances, and we have several examples of them, it can be an, edge, an engine of development. But a stadium by itself doesn't work. Um, Jeff Cohen, you really have been making a, a massive effort to sort of at least understand the numbers that were being given. And none of the things that Andrew Zimbalist just talked about are, have been proposed. Uh, in fact, the, the, the Solomon brothers who are, or Solomon siblings who are the owners of this team uh, would have uh, some skin in the game in terms of uh, maybe 10 percent uh, of the cost of the stadium. But tell us what else you found out about the numbers. It may be interesting for Andrew Zimbalist to, to react to. Sure. Well, there, there are a lot of financial projections that come out of this uh, when it because the mayor really is selling this, Mayor Segarra in Hartford really is selling this as economic development. So an estimated $2 million in annual tax revenue, an annual estimated, and that's not to the city, by the way, that would be to the state, an annual estimated $8 million in hotel food and beverage spending, um, 600 new full-time permanent jobs, 900 initial construction jobs. Now, leaving the construction jobs aside, this, there's one number that's really paramount in all of this, and, that, and uh, that's the annual average attendance that they're projecting. 500,000 people uh, would have to come to the baseball events alone. Uh, that's a big deal, because if you divide that by the number of games that the baseball uh, team has in a year, it's about at home games, that's about 7,000 people per game. That, the Rockcats right now get 3,800 people per game on average this year. So the financial projections are all based on that average attendance, uh, which left me at least scratching my head. Well, Andrew Zimlis, one of the things that it does seem uh, is that it's pretty easy to find a consultant who will do a PowerPoint uh, a presentation for a city uh, going into some kind of partnership of this kind with, with some sports owners that will uh, paint this kind of blue sky scenario. I mean, Jeff's done a lot of other research about the fact that this is they're proposing that 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 ten percent of the people who go to these games roughly will stay in hotels, which I just doesn't really fit with my understanding of people going to Double A baseball games. Uh, they're 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 assessing the catchment area for this uh, stadium as as two point five million people, which is almost the entire state of Connecticut. So, I mean, it just seems as though it's, it's. Uh, I guess there's no penalty ever assessed to any feasibility consultant for, for coming up with these blue sky numbers. On the contrary, you know, if if uh, they, they come up with, with gray sky numbers, they'll never get hired again. 
Uh, no, so no, it's absolutely the case. There's all, all, I think I think universally for every single uh, minor league, major league, and college stadium that's been built over the last 30 years, there's a consultant group that's hired. They do a, a, an input-output study uses a, uses a model that's usually called REMI, R-E-M-I. Uh, that that methodology is inappropriate for this purpose, and they make unrealistic assumptions. Just one of them you suggested about 10% hotel stays, which does indeed sound unrealistic. Uh, but you can you know you can you can generate why why stop at 600 jobs? Why not say 10,000 jobs? It, it doesn't make any sense. If if uh, I were given the study, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm I'm sure that I could go through it page by page and sentence by sentence, and show you what what doesn't work. But look, the, the idea that you're going to generate two million dollars of tax revenue to the state by moving a baseball team from New Britain to um, to Hartford, the only way that something like that could even begin to happen is if you got um, a lot of people coming from Massachusetts and Rhode Island and New York and wherever else, um, traveling long distances that people don't travel for for a double-A team, especially if you're in New England and the team is based, uh, the home team is based in Minnesota. Uh, you're not, you're gonna, I don't think you're going to get any uh, tax revenue because all you're doing is tr- either you're transferring spending in New Britain to spending in Hartford or you're transferring uh, money that is spent on other entertainment venues in Greater Hartford towards spending at the new ballpark. That's what tends to happen. But in the process, the city or the state is is uh, taking on $60 million or more in debt. I don't know. The, uh, you know, these these things always have cost overruns. I don't know what kind of provisions are in there right now. Uh, but, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 percent cost overruns are very common. But let's, if you use a figure $60 million and you assume that the interest rate is going to be roughly 4 percent, you're talking about $3.8 million steady state uh, cost in financing that debt service over the years. That doesn't help the economy. That by itself hurts the economy. So any gain that's made during the construction period where you have construction workers, that gets offset by payments that have to be made over time roughly $3.8 million a year. I'm, I'm saying that very generally. Yeah. It could be a little and, more and or less. Let me just run, jump in yeah. here because so, we're about to run out of time. There's one thing I want to get to. So maybe it's a $60 million debt, but uh, one of the other possibilities, Jeff, is that some of that money, maybe $20 million, they may be reading a cookie jar elsewhere in the budget and actually pulling that out as a capital expenditure, right? That's right. They, they've looked to, to do that, to isolate some projects on the city's capital improvement project list from projects that have already been approved. Uh, and the mayor is now hasn't yet decided which projects will are, come off. Those are jobs that, that will be lost then. If there are other capital improvement projects that aren't going to happen, those are lost jobs. And Andrew Zimbalis, one thing I wanted to ask you is, I don't know whether anybody's done this, but one of the questions that I have about about a project like this is whether it's debt service money or whether it's money from reading the co- cookie jar of the budget. In, it invariably means that other things don't get done in a municipality that can commits a lot of money to a project like this. I don't know if anybody's ever sort of tried to study that. Like, what's the effect of the the urban park that doesn't get uh, fixed up or, or the school that doesn't get repaired or i mean this money you know is going to go someplace else now yeah so and and what you have to do is to compare the development prospects of investing in in roads or investing in security or investing in a public park versus investing in a new ballpark for a double a ball team because you're having it's the same money it's the same two million or twenty million or sixty million dollars being spent on one item instead of being spent on another another item 
And, you know, the problem, another issue that has to be emphasized here is we're talking about a ballpark that's going to be used 72 games out of a year. That's one out of every five days, a little less than one out of every five days. Some of the other projects, if you build roads, they're going to be used every day of the year. Yeah. All right. Well, Andrew Zimblis, we, we are out of time. Thanks so much for your time, though. Andrew Zimblis uh, is, the, is the Robert A. Woods Professor of Economics at Smith. Uh, his most recent book is The Sabermetric Revolution, Assessing the Growth of Analytics in Baseball. Jeff Cohen is ace reporter for WNPR, the guy who's been covering this story and also covering the Hartford City budget, which now kind of interlocked in an interesting way. All right. We'll be back uh, tomorrow with a very interesting show about why are Canadians so darn funny, eh? Go, go, go. Just for certain, no, no, no Did you know that if you build it, they could come? I'm Kion Wolf with a proposal to shut this whole ballpark idea down. Instead, we're going to build a factory that makes solar-powered umbrellas. Okay, all right, fine. We'll take Hartford resident Jamil Ragland up on his idea for a giant pyramid. Really? Okay.